the opinion that people have got of Jesus is very prevalent now in society. I speak to a lot of the tourists that come through and they just religion doesn't factor anymore. Never mind Christianity. As the one said there, I think the French woman, I'm not going to try and sound like a French woman now, but um, she said, Jesus is not for people like us. He's important, but he's not for people like us. So let's see this picture of Jesus. And the question that comes to my mind is that when, when the Lord does reappear and everyday people like this suddenly see who the real Jesus is, what is going to be the shock and horror that overcomes? That is why we need to take out the gospel message. Because it's ordinary people like that from all walks of nation that need to hear who the real Jesus is before it's too late. So let's see who this Jesus is. And, and this passage we're looking at is one of the culminations of Revelation. As we see this picture of the glorious and exalted one, Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as he returns. So, let's look at Revelation chapter 19 and we're starting to read at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following behind him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we come to this new picture of who Jesus Christ is, we've had a lot of pictures right through the book of Revelation. And they've all been leading forward to the moment when he reappears. If you've been reading through Revelation and you've had a sequential, as in a straight line, linear vision of who, of the, the happenings um, in Revelation, you're going to be fairly confused at this point in time. But if, if you see the pictures in Revelation as a series of visions which are progressing towards this point where Jesus reappears and when the judgment happens, then the picture will be, should be fairly clear at this stage. Because we've had the various camera angles on the events of history leading up to this point when the king returns. And the picture we're looking at today and the descriptions we're going to have today are, they are found in many other passages in the Bible, specifically in the book of Isaiah and also in other places in Revelation. So it's nothing new that we're going to come across this morning. But it's kind of a summary this morning of who Jesus is. As he rides out with the army dressed in white following behind him, 
It's as if he's putting out a picture, curriculum vitae. He's putting out a picture, summary, of who he really is. And as we see him marching out ahead, as he rides that horse of his army, let's be encouraged again who this Lord is that has come into our life, the one who came and called you and I, if we are believers here this morning, and said, you are mine. I want a relationship with you. This is the same Lord. So let's look at him. Who is he? Firstly, we see, and if we look at the description of who he is, and we, we're going to look at various descriptions that are given to us, and I'll be referring to specific verses here, so try and follow with me, and we're going to jump around again a little bit. But we see firstly that he's seated on a white horse, verse 1, verse 11 rather. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. So, do you see that picture? Here is the warrior king coming out ahead of his army, seated on his white horse. Now we know white already, you should be uh, experts at this, by this stage, we're in chapter 19. White means what? Purity and victory. And we're going to learn something else this morning as well. It's the priestly garments that were worn as judgment was brought on people. And so we're going to come to that a little later. But they're wearing white, which is purity, victory, those who have overcome. And here Christ is seated on his horse. Victorious picture of splendor. Jesus, the conqueror on his white horse, riding to his final triumph. Do you see the picture? With his army coming behind him. Now, the people of those days would be used to things, seeing things like this. And um, they would see the Roman general who'd be approaching Rome. And the picture that they would see, which is in a way it's similar but very different to the one we're seeing now, is when the Caesar would come ahead of his conquering army, they would send out ahead in the first part of the retinue, they would send out prisoners, manacled, with blood flowing. And they would whip them especially before this, um, this parade took place so that they would be bleeding as they walked. You'd hear their screams. You'd hear their moans. And they would all come ahead of the conqueror. And then behind them all would come the Roman general on his white horse. And he would come up the Via Sacra, the sacred way, up into Rome. And as he approached the Temple of Jupiter on Capitol Hill or Capitoloni Hill, which is where the temple of Jupiter was, he would get off his horse and he would walk ahead. And behind him would come his soldiers in their finest array. So they were used to seeing like this. Remember Jews, the Jewish nation was a conquered nation at this stage. The Romans had invaded. Now, Jesus didn't copy the picture from the Romans. This picture is used so that they'd have a point of similarity. And so see Jesus coming in his splendor. What else are we told over here about what he looks like? We're told in verse 12 that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Now where have we come across that? We've come across that in chapter 1 verse 14. And if you look at Daniel chapter 10 verse 6, in that description of the king there, you'll also see he has eyes that has like flames of fire. What is that speaking about? A bit of revision? 
Yes, his eyes are like flames of fire. Remember what it is? He can see everything. His eyes are all piercing. He can discern evil and good perfectly. And then the fire comes which purifies. So see that picture. Here is the Lord approaching, seated on that white horse, and his eyes pierce. He can see everything, good and evil. Nothing can be hidden from him. You need to build up this picture of who this king is. Next thing, he's wearing many crowns. Now, as we've been going through uh, the book of Revelation, we've had various pictures of the dragon wearing seven crowns. We've seen the beast wearing ten crowns, and we've gone into all that. But this king who approaches on his horse is wearing many crowns. And the word used here is the word undefined multiplicity of crowns. There's indefinable number of crowns he's wearing on his head. Now if you're a literalist, that's a bit of a problem. Here he's wearing so many crowns that you can't number them. In other words, what's it saying to us? This one is the sovereign one. This one is the true king. His kingship is eternal. It's not limited like these other creatures that wore crowns. Do you see the picture? So he's sitting on his white horse. He's got eyes which are flames of fire. He's wearing all these crowns which are saying he's the sovereign Lord. And then we see him pictured clothed with a blood-dipped robe. Verse 13. Do you see this king? His robe is completely covered in blood. Now there's a reason for that. What's the reference? Come on, good Christians. What's the reference here? Yes. Help me. Blood. Robe. Oh, wow. Calvary, yes. Jesus Christ died on that cross. That's part of the picture. He died on that cross. Because right through the book of Revelation, we have this picture of the Lamb who has overcome sin and death, right? It's not a new picture in Revelation. We see it right from the beginning, right through the book. The Lamb who is the one who was slain. And in this form, He overcomes evil. And He overcome not by shedding the blood of others, as happened in the Crusades, as they thought justified what they were doing, but He comes shedding His own blood. But that's only half the picture. You see, that's the grace part. He came to bring forgiveness of sins. What always comes with grace? What's the other half? Judgment. And the same robe speaks about His judgment which is to come. And we've come across this in chapter 14, verse 19 to 20. He is the one who treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. That's taken from Isaiah chapter 63. Let's go and read that. Isaiah chapter 63, just so that you know that I'm getting this from Scripture. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 to 4. Here's the question asked. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll see there's a little heading there might be. Remember the headings aren't inspired by God. Those are just put there by men to help us to, or by people, sorry, to help us to understand. So, chapter 63 Verse 1 of Isaiah. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Do you see the picture? 
It's of the glorified Messiah that's being given here in a prophetic voice. Why is your apparel red and your garments like this who treads in the winepress? Here's the answer. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. Why? Because he's the only one who can do it. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. That's the picture that we get here of this king who approaches seated on the white horse, his eyes like flames of fire, wearing many crowns of sovereign God, and yet there's grace in that. He's wearing a robe spattered in blood, his own, but also those who he has come to judge. Grace, judgment. This is the king that's approaching. Do you see him in your mind's eye? Now, what are the names given to him? Because they add to this picture. What are the names given to him? These are, it's a beautiful picture we've got here. He's called, verse 11, the, his name is Faithful and True. Faithful and True of what? He's a witness of God's good news. He's the faithful and the true witness of God's message. This is the king who approaches. This is the king that we put our trust in. He is the faithful and the true witness of what God has given to us. He's come to give the very words of God. And therefore, if God gives us promises as believers, going through persecuted times or going through difficult times, let's believe His words. He's the faithful and the true witness. Why would we not believe His promises? Take courage. The one that you hear these words from is the faithful and the true witness. What else has told us about Him? Verse 12. He's given a name that God only knows. And John saw a name but God only knew what that name was. So what's that all about? Well, it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 62. And if you page back a little bit in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 2 to 3, we have here a picture of Zion. The picture of God's gathering of His people. And Zion is given a name which only God knows. And it's a new name. That's the reference here. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2 to 3. I'll read that for you. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal crown in the hand of your God. Scripture tells us that when God's people gather together in Zion, that place where God is going to draw all people who have put their faith in Him, Old Testament, New Testament, those from the past, those in the future, who know Him. We're all going to be gathered there together and God will give us a new name that only He knows at the stage. And it's reflected in the Saviour, the one who is our Saviour, who also has this name on Him which only God knows. But it will be revealed. I'll come back to their thoughts. There's another thing we need to know about Old Testament thinking. In the Old Testament, to know someone, to know someone meant that you have control over them because you knew their character. And so that was kind of a known thing. If you knew their name, you knew their character, you had control over them. 
But there are many things about God that still remain a mystery to us as little human beings with limited processes. And lest we start to think that we know God completely and understand Him fully and start laying claim to being gods ourselves, as Satan did, God has an unnamed name given to His Son too, which He will reveal later. And how do we get to know this name? Well, when we come to Him in, by grace, and when we start getting to know Jesus better and better, that name of His, His character, is revealed to us more fully. And when unbelievers appear before Him one day, and they find out who He really is, not just the funny dude with the long hair, they will start knowing what the true name of God is. His name will be revealed to them too. So that's His unknown name, which will be revealed to us. And then there's another name given to him. His name in verse 13 is the Word of God. The very Word of God is the literal translation. The very Word. The Word itself of God. The Logos is the word that we know from the Greek. The Logos of God. The very breathed out words of God himself. That is who Jesus Christ is. He is the Word which God breathes out. How do we know that? John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Beautiful words. Let's look at them together. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. The same Apostle John that wrote Revelation is writing these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is he speaking about? The second person of the Trinity who would later become become known as Jesus the Christ. Here he is, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He was with God in the beginning, but he also was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. What did God do in the beginning? He breathed out the words. Let there be light. And there was light. And who was creating there? It was Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity creating there. He is the Logos, the Word. And everything that was made was made through Him. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Do you see? The same Logos is the light which came to this earth and became the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Even here it doesn't overcome. This is the one. Do you see the picture building up in your mind? The one who is the Word of God. And in Him God fully expresses and reveals Himself. He becomes the light of the world. John chapter 1 verse 18. And this very same one who breathed out God's very words to the world, he will judge the world by the plumb line of that unchanging word. When God judges at the end of time, nothing new is going to be revealed that we suddenly didn't know about. He's not going to change the goalposts as is often used today. Everything that he judges by will have been known to us before the time. Because the Logos is a true witness. And he will judge the world, he will judge you and I, he will judge our actions. More than that, he will judge our hearts by the plumb line. If you're a builder you'll know what that is, I think they still use them or is it lasers now. But he will measure you by the laser light, by the plumb line of his word which is unchanging. He'll look at your soul and measure it against what he's revealed about what your soul should look like in Jesus Christ. 
This is the Logos we're speaking about. He is the Word of God. And He will judge mankind by His testimony about what God had said. So, He's, he's going to judge mankind by the revealed Word of God Himself and by His own testimony that He came to give about that Word. And there we've got the Jewish two testimony. So by the testimony of two, you will be judged. By God's Word and by the Word of His Son. So that's the, the second thing we learn about His names. The third thing that we learn about His names is that He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sorry, the fourth thing. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. And this name, these names are written on His thigh and on His robe. Let's look at the names first and then the location. So, he's king of kings. There is no other king like him. He is the king above all kings. He's the king wearing the multiple, all those crowns. He is the sovereign one. He is the Lord of lords. There is no other one who is more powerful than him. He is the one above all. This is the king who comes riding out on that white horse. I hope that picture is building into a beautiful picture in your mind. And we see that these names are written on his thigh and on his robe. Now, it's just common practice for leaders in battle that their name would be written on their thigh. How? Did they have big markers and I am Arthur? No, they didn't do it like that. When you're riding on a horse, it was a real practical thing. Your sword would be on your thigh, otherwise it's going to stab you somewhere in that hopping along. And the other thing that you wore was a shield and that would have a special hook which would get hooked in and that was here on your thigh area. And on that, on that shield was emblazoned the symbol for who that leader was. So his name is emblazoned on his thigh. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see the one who's coming riding out here? This is no other than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It says so. It says so all over his robe. His robe which is splattered in blood red. You can't mistake this one. And not just that. What else do we know about the thigh in the Old Testament? That is where people placed their hands to swear an oath which was to be kept. Genesis chapter 24 verse 2. Alright. When anyone swore an oath their hand would be placed on the thigh of the person and then that promise would have to be kept. Here God places the name of Jesus on his thigh. In other words, who he says he is, he will keep that promise. That oath will be kept. And so he will come and judge, not just as the one who is victorious, but he will come and judge as the one who is the judge of all men. He is King of Kings. Lord of Lords, make no mistake about who He is. Wow, what a picture we're building up. What else do we learn? There's something about His mission. If we look at some of the verses here, verses 15, we see that He's on a very specific mission and the clues are given to us in this verse. From His mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, what we're looking at is four Old Testament allusions or pictures which were prophesied before the time. They've got their parallels in Scripture. And from his mouth comes the sharp sword. Reference Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah. 
Isaiah chapter 49 verse 2, we see that used in one of the many times. And also we've seen it in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, right at the beginning of this prophecy where Jesus is described, the one who appears before the churches as the one who comes with the sword, the sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth. So what's that all about? He's come firstly to destroy the wicked. A sword was there for destruction. He's come to destroy the wicked, unbelievers, the Antichrist, any vestige of evil. When he rides out in victory, he has come to destroy evil. And in his righteousness, he judges and he wages war. How does he, wa- how does he wage war? By his sword. What is the sword? It is the word of his mouth which comes out. And so he wages war by his revealed word. Do you see how he does it? And if you glance a little bit ahead, and I'm getting ahead of myself now, if you glance a little bit ahead, you'll see that a war is going to be fought. But not one member of his army is going to raise a hand. How is Jesus going to overcome? By the word of his mouth. That last battle of Armageddon, which happens, Jesus is only going to speak a word, and Satan and his whole entourage, his whole army, are going to be slaughtered by that word. The unchanging Word of God. And then fire will come and destroy them. The Word and purification. Fire, sorry, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. You see, this is the only legitimate holy war. And again, I come back to the Crusades because it's often chucked in front of Christians to say, just look at you Christians, that's what you did. Yes, but they were evil men who did that under the name of Christianity. The only way that a sword is going to be used in battle on behalf of Christianity is when Jesus Christ brings His sword and judges. There is no other justification for picking up arms for the sake of the Gospel. I'm not a pacifist. There are political reasons to pick up arms and to help to keep a nation and to keep things as we know that are good. Yes. But when we speak about Christianity, there is no justification for killing anyone. Don't believe it. Islam has a very different message. Christianity doesn't have that same message. We say the Lamb has come to save. He has come to save any man and woman. He will do the judging in the end. Let's leave it to Him. When He judges by His sword. From His mouth comes the sharp sword. What else do we see? We see He's going to use that sharp sword to smite down the nations. Now this isn't a pretty picture. This isn't a gentle lamb. This is a mighty conquering warrior. He will smite down the nations. That word smite is to completely obliterate. It's not going to be pretty. When he judges, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. There will be blood. And next time when we come, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a little bit of a head warning here. Next Sunday it's going to be brimstone. Actually not, it's just blood. And vultures gorging themselves on dead bodies. So welcome to next Sunday. But it's the last time we're going to see this. Because he is overcoming. It's the last battle. 
And then it's over. And after that we look at the glorious pictures of heaven and what is to wait for believers. He will smite the nations. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3 to 4. This is what it says. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. Listen to what God says through the prophet many years before Revelation was written. And we read it this morning. Thanks to Lisa and Mike. But I just want to pick up verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or he won't be tricked by what people can put in front of him, or decide disputes by what he hears people telling him. He will look straight at the heart. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. When Jesus comes, He will come to judge the nations. And also, verse 15, He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. There's referring to Psalm 2, verse 9, which specifically speaks about this. You see, God's word of accusation comes against the nations and He condemns those who are ungodly and He consigns them to His judgment. How can He do that? What gives Him the right to do this? Well, he's wearing all that multiplicity of crowns. He is the sovereign, the absolute ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords. That's why he can do it. He can judge with perfect righteousness, perfect fairness. He has warned through his word, but people wouldn't listen. And when he does come, he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's also part of his mission, verse 15. We saw this in Revelation 14:20. We see this in Isaiah 63, verse 3. His judgment will be complete and just. Evil will be overthrown completely and all sin will be dealt with forever. Not one more sin will be committed. That's why I have a severe problem with the linear interpretation of Scripture. Because there it says that when Christ comes again, there's going to be a period again where people are going to sin once more. How? He's dealt with it. How will a holy God allow people to still carry on sinning? We need to read Scripture in the way it's written. Sin will no more raise its head. It will be conquered forever. And then the last part of this glorious picture, and that's where you and I come in. Are you paying attention? No one falling asleep here? Here we see his army coming behind their master. The army coming before their glorious Lord on his white horse. These are the saints, says verse 14, in heaven. Dressed in fine, white and clean linen. And there they are on beautiful horses. Now, I'm no horseman. But that day, we're going to be on white horses, says the picture. And we are going to be with the Lord, and we're going to follow in His train. Now, what's the picture here? Is it the picture just of an army? No. It's more a judicial statement a legal picture being portrayed for us. You see, here we have the, the one dressed in white coming to judge. And behind him are those dressed in white who are the witnesses to what has happened. Dressed in white. Why are they dressed in white? Well, yes, they've overcome. Yes, they're pure. But 
They're also dressed in their priestly outfits in this role, in this picture. It says we'll be priests with Him forever. Here's one of the roles we're going to play. We are going to be forming part of the legal procession of judgment as God brings judgment against others. This is a legal testimony. And it refers to the Lord's words, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 41 to 42. You might want to follow here with me. Otherwise you might lose me. We've looked at this before from the book of Luke when we preached through that series in Luke where the men of Nineveh says Jesus will, raise, will rise up on the last day and bring testimony against those who haven't listened. Well, this is part of the men of Nineveh rising up. It's those who have heard the word and have turned to the Lord. They will be used as judicial witnesses in the court of law to testify against those who are disobedient. And so Jesus approaches with his army dressed in white. They, in this picture, are the legal witnesses who are rising up in testimony against those who have not listened. And so by the testimony of God the Father, of God the Son, and by many other witnesses who are the born-again ones, people will be judged and go to eternity in hell. That's the picture here for us. It's a theological statement. These are those who have overcome, and we've seen that earlier in chapter 3, verse 4, in um, the description of the saints of Sardis. They are dressed in their priestly outfits, and they form part of this legal procession of judgment. We need to get our heads around that one. And that's not all. They will follow, the, they will follow Jesus Christ rank after rank after rank after rank of white horses and white horses. Do you see the picture? I don't know if any of you have, uh, uh, there will be some I know, because I've sat with you, who have watched um, Star Wars. Okay? I love the way they start Star Wars. They have this writing. And if you're on a big screen, you can't get it on these little TVs. You have to sit in a cinema. And as you see these headings, and they kind of give you a little preamble of what's been happening up to now, just to bring up those who haven't been following it all their lives. Um, and, and as it comes, it kind of goes over you, and then it kind of goes off into the distance. And you get this picture of being small and all this big stuff coming over you. And then they have these big battle cruisers, and they kind of come over your head, and with all the surround sound. I love it. Oh, this is a bit like surround sound here. See the Lord approaching on His white horse. And as He comes by, see those dressed in white on white horses. And they come, 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 and it doesn't end. Why? Because He's going to save millions and millions who will be added to the kingdom of God. Who said Christianity was dying out? It's a victorious picture. We are going to be part of many, many, many who will be part of God's kingdom. We are part of a big picture. So don't lose heart when Christianity seems to be dying out in the West, in other parts of this globe. It is growing by millions. He is building His kingdom. He is the conquering Saviour. And here He approaches. Do you see Him? Do you hear the sound of the horse? Take courage. And as they follow him on white horses, they go out to that battle of Armageddon.
But this is going to be a battle like no other. And I'm not going to go much into it because I'll get to it next week. This is going to be a battle like no other because only one is going to fight. They will be there with him, but in the end, with Satan and his armies there ready to fight, only he is going to fight and only through one action. He's going to open his mouth and speak a word and they will be destroyed and then fire will burn them. If you want to know where that's going to happen, look ahead to verse 21. Look ahead to Revelation 20 verse 9. You'll see those pictures. We'll get to them. Are you excited yet? Fantastic. Now we get to the so what? What do I do with this? Okay, first thing is, we need to see the full picture of Jesus Christ. You see, unfortunately today, and that's why we have testaments of people like those tourists that I showed you right at the beginning, who they know something about God and not much. There's no relevance to them. It's because many times we as Christians, as evangelists, are the guilty party. Why? Because the only picture we put out there is this picture of this gentle saviour, meek and mild, who wants to love people and to forgive their sin. Is that important? Yes, it's utterly important. We must tell them that he is the one who was crucified on their behalf so that they wouldn't have to die for their sin. We must tell them that he was the one who was executed there in vengeance from people. But we must also tell them the other half of the story. We can't give them a half a picture of Jesus Christ. That is why they've got such an insipid view of the Saviour. They only hear about the one who wants to love. They don't hear about the other side, the one who is the judge. Remember? Grace, judgment. He's also pictured here, you see, as the one who will one day ride out to execute vengeance and judgment. He is the divine warrior, executing judgment and ruling sovereignly over all. And he calls you and I to reach out to the world around us and to give them the full picture of who he is. Yes, he is the Saviour who will love them and who will offer them forgiveness of sin if they will only bow their knee. But he's also the judge who will judge them if they will not bow. Do we give the full picture? If we don't, people won't see their dire need of the Saviour in the light of his role as judge. They won't see it. Because we minimise sin and the effects of sin and who can take away sin. We just want to get them in the kingdom. But they will experience his mercy and his love if he saves them from darkness to light. We need to give that full picture to people. And so I'll get to my second point of application. And if you're not a believer here today, I want you really to listen to me. Some of you have been coming here for a few weeks and I know that you don't believe yet. How many more times will you hear the invitation to come and bow to Jesus Christ? Don't say you weren't warned. Here it is again. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31. The Apostle Paul speaking about people's relationship to God and how we should react to Him. This is what it says. Listen to this. And I put it up here for you. God overlooks people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. What are earlier times? Paul's speaking about the times they're in now. So the earlier times, Old Testament times, alright? They only had a partial picture of who Jesus Christ and the Messiah was. But now he says, you've got a full picture. 
Because you've got the preaching of the apostles, you've got the teaching of the letters that we've been sending out. He's saying now, He commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins. Look at that phrase. Everyone, everywhere. Is there an exclusion clause there just for you? No. He says, He commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to Him. Why? Here's a reason. For He has set a day for judging the world. Our calendars are going to work till that day. But it is going to be a very specific day on our calendar when Jesus Christ will reappear to judge. It isn't a myth. It isn't just a figment of Christians' imaginations. There will be a day when He will reappear. It's going to be a set day, set by God Himself, when He will judge the world. How? With justice. Through who? By the man He has appointed. And if you've got a good Bible, it's got a capital M there, showing Jesus Christ. The man He appointed, and that's the one we've just read about, and God proved that to everyone, He proved to everyone who this is by raising Him from the dead. Who is going to judge the world? The one who was raised from the dead. Who was raised from the dead? Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Turn to Him and be saved today. You see, what's men's reaction? What are people's reactions? John chapter 3, verse 19 is how people generally, generally, generally respond. Listen to this. You know these verses well. John chapter 3 verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There's statement of fact breathed out by the Logos. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, there are those who put the accusation before, before God. Who is he? When we read scripture, all he is, he just wants to kill people and destroy nations. No, he's not. He does that because they won't listen. He wants to save people. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because of the state of who they are before him, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now here's the problem, verse 19. I refer to my introduction of those tourists. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He's important, yes, but not for people like us. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. There's God's word. Come to him and be saved. And then lastly, for us as believers, this is a fantastic passage because it gives us overwhelming hope. When I went along to the Grand Canyon, as you approach the Grand Canyon, there's these signs that you come across. You are approaching an awesome view. Grand view. View place coming up. I wonder why they do, did that. I always thought it was just so that they're advertising that there's a fantastic place, even though it's a big ditch full of erosion. But when you actually get there, it's so awesome that you forget what you're doing. So I think it's actually a warning to people. So pay attention to your driving. 
There's an awesome view coming because when it comes upon you, just remember you're behind a wheel. There's a brake to use. Otherwise, you're going to see the erosion close at hand. I think it's for that actually. Because it's in a yellow sign and usually that's danger sign. Awesome view approaching. You see, we have an awesome view approaching. Jesus Christ. And yes, it's filled with hope. And yes, there's, there's judgment coming. But as those who are in Him, what lies ahead for us? That awesome scene of Christ coming again. And all the saints who are already dead in heaven will be there with us to meet those of us who might still be alive on this earth. And together we will be in that massive procession which will be joined. And there's going to be big singing there. There's going to be trumpets. There's going to be angels. It's going to be an awesome day if I can use a good Kiwi term. Awesome. Because as you see your Saviour riding out in majesty and awe ahead of that vast army of some who you will know and you'll recognise them sitting there dressed in white riding a horse. Who ever thought your grandfather would ride a horse? He's going to be there dressed in white. Ask the Lord to lift up your soul from its everyday view of life. You see, so quickly stuff comes up against us and how am I going to handle this? Our views become this. Scripture says, let your view become wide again as you see your Saviour. What can come against you if this one who is awesome and majestic is going to make sure that you're there on that day? What can overcome you? Be lifted up. And whatever you're experiencing now, yes, it's terrible and it seems overwhelming, but this is so much bigger. See this vision of the picture. See this vision of the future. And then lift up your head and see the coming King. And your soul will rise up in you. And you'll find yourself singing in the middle of whatever is around you. Praise be to the Lord for this picture. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we long for that day when Jesus Christ reappears. But Lord, in the meantime, we have friends, we have family who still do not yet know you. Lord, give us an urgency about the gospel. May we tell them that you are the Lord who loves them and wants to forgive them. But Lord, may we also tell them that if they don't listen to the message that you have given through your Son, that they will face you as judge. May we be good messengers. May we be faithful witnesses of the message you've given to us as believers. May we go out into all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we take it out as faithful messengers. And may we see you through that message, building your kingdom and adding to the millions who will be there in eternity with you forever. Thank you for this glorious picture of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the one who is exalted the one who is lifted up and high, seated on his white horse ahead of his army, about to conquer evil forever. Lift our heads to see the coming King and then use us for your glory in this week, we pray.